0: And so it happened when Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, heard it. He was still in Egypt, for he had fled from the presence of King Solomon and had been dwelling in Egypt, that they sent and called him. Then Jeroboam and the whole assembly of Israel came and spoke to Rehoboam, saying, Your father made our yoke heavy. Now, therefore, lighten the burdensome service of your father and his heavy yoke, which he put on us, and we will serve you. So he said to them, Depart for three days, then come back to me, and the people departed. Now, we're told back in chapter 11, verse 28, that this Jeroboam was an industrious man. He was skillful. He had been a mighty man of valor, and he had served under Solomon until Solomon discovered that God was going to raise up Jeroboam to tear the kingdom away from his son. At one time... Jeroboam was an ally of Solomon, but now he is the rebel who leads the revolt and who tears the kingdom from Solomon's dynasty, his son, Rehoboam, the Davidic dynasty. Jeroboam's insurgence begins, we're told, here at Shechem, and it happens in the midst of Rehoboam's inauguration. A confrontation occurs at the coronation. These northern tribes are tired of the heavy taxation that has been imposed by Solomon and now Rehoboam. They are looking for some tax cuts. Isn't it amazing how life has changed since 960 B.C. and yet remains the same? The political issues today are much the same as they were for Rehoboam. It's been said a man pays a luxury tax on his billfold, an income tax on the stuff he puts in it, a sales tax on whatever he takes out of it, and an inheritance tax if there's anything left in it when he dies. In other words, we get taxed on all fronts. One man commented on taxation in today's America. He said, Patrick Henry should come back and see what taxation with representation looks like. (laughs) Hey, in Romans chapter 13, verses 6 and 7, we are commanded as believers in Jesus to pay our taxes. It's our duty to pay the duty. But as the passage conveys, whenever government will relax the tax, it turns out to be a good strategy. Now, when Jeroboam makes his demand, Rehoboam asks him for three days to think it over. And during those three days, he polls his advisors. First, he asks the old guys, the guys who had served under King Solomon. And they give Rehoboam what turns out to be excellent wisdom. They tell him in verse 7, If you will be a servant to these people today and serve them and answer them and speak good words to them, then they will be your servants forever. What a lesson for all leaders. Whether you are a church leader or a foreman on the job or the CEO of your company, if you'll be a servant to the people, they will then support you with their service. Before you can be a good leader, you need to be a good servant. You need to let people know, the people you are leading know, that you truly care about them. But that's not what Rehoboam wanted to hear. He turns to the young men, his own peers, the men that he has grown up with there in the palace. And they tell him to take an opposite tack, to take a hard tone. Draw a hard line. Verses 10 and 11 records the response They suggest. Tell him, my little finger shall be thicker than my father's waist. And now, whereas my father put a heavy tax on you, I will add to your yoke. My father chastised you with whips, but I will chastise you with scourges. They're wanting Rehoboam to flex his muscles. Show no mercy. Rehoboam, it's time to get tough. This story is chock full of very important lessons for us. First lesson. More often than not, people are more responsive to love than they are to lashes. They're more inclined to follow the person who feeds them rather than beats them. And second lesson, be careful who you go to for advice. Don't just listen to peers, people who will tell you what you want to hear. Listen to the older person who's been around a while, who's gained and gleaned some wisdom. Now, when Jeroboam returns for his answer, we're told in verse 13, the king answered the people roughly and rejected the advice the elders had given him. And just what you think is going to happen does. The northern tribes revolt. They succeed from the union. Their declaration of independence appears in verse 16. What share have we in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel. Now see to your own house, O David. We're making a break right here and now. Now, Rehoboam makes another boneheaded move in verse 18. He sends the head of the IRS to talk some sense into the rebels. Adoram, We're told who was in charge of the revenue. (laughs) That's not the right guy you would have said to, to communicate good feelings to these people. And we're told all Israel stoned him with stones and he died. I guess you could say they filled out their version of the short form. And they sent back Adoram's dead body. Now in response, Rehoboam climbs aboard his bulletproof chariot and he races back to the White House there in Jerusalem. He's afraid for his life. And we're told in verse 19, so Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. In other words, it was a permanent rift. It was a rift that lasted for the next two centuries. Now, when Rehoboam gets back to Jerusalem, he readies his army, 180,000 troops. Civil war is on the brink, but it's averted when God sends word to Rehoboam not to go and fight against Israel. In fact, we're told that this breakup is God's will. Back in verse 15 of chapter 12, we were told the turn of affairs was from the Lord. Guys, understand. God is sovereign. God is in control over all things. God is sovereign even over negative circumstances. This was an ugly split. This was a riff. This was a division. And yet, it was all done to fulfill the punishment that God had pronounced upon Solomon's idolatry. It was the will of God. In verse 24, the Lord says to Rehoboam, For this thing is from me. And here's another important lesson. If a thing is from God, be careful not to fight against it. When Rehoboam sensed the division of the kingdom was God's will, he turned back. I have discovered that whenever I fight against God, I lose. And when you find that a thing is of God, back off. You're going to lose if you resist it. Now, you would think of all people, Jeroboam would guard against repeating the sin of Solomon. In fact, that's why he's in power, because God has punished Solomon's idolatry. But Jeroboam doesn't put the two things together in his mind. He goes and sets up idols in Bethel, the southern end of his kingdom, and in Dan, the northern end. And here's his justification for doing so. Verse 26 and 27, and Jeroboam said in his heart, now the kingdom may return to the house of David. If these people go up to offer sacrifices in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will turn back to their Lord, Rehoboam, king of Judah and they will kill me and go back to Rehoboam, king of Judah. Now, when the Hebrews offered sacrifice, they were required to come to Jerusalem. The temple in Jerusalem was God's designated place for worship. Three times a year at least, the northern tribes were supposed to journey to Judah to worship at the temple. But you see, Jeroboam reasoned, hey, if the northern tribes, if my people, go down to Jerusalem three times a year and worship God there, the southern capital of Rehoboam's kingdom. They may become loyal to the king of Judah. They might end up turning against me. And Jeroboam is worried about losing his influence over his people, and so he develops an alternative religion for the northern kingdom. He sets up these idols in Dan and in Bethel. Now, I'm sure in Jeroboam's mind, he did not plan on embracing idolatry. Even though that's where it led. I believe that he wanted to worship God, but he chose to worship God in a manner that God had forbidden. Jeroboam did what Aaron had done in the wilderness. Back in Exodus chapter 32 verse 4, you remember we're told that Aaron also fashioned a golden calf. We're told then he made a proclamation. Tomorrow is a feast to the Lord. But notice the word Lord is capitalized, which means in the Hebrew that it's the word Yahweh or Jehovah. In other words, the sacred name for the one true God of the Hebrews. Aaron's calf and apparently Jeroboam's two calves weren't intended to represent another God, but the true God. Revelation chapter 4 perhaps shed some light on this. That's probably what he had in mind. There we discover that the cherubim around the throne of God have the face of a calf. And in Jeroboam's mind, this calf might have been his attempt to represent the presence of God, the true God. You see, Jeroboam's sin was not so much a violation of the... First commandment, you shall have no other gods before me, as much as it was a violation of the second commandment. You shall not make for yourself a carved image. Any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, you shall not bow down to them to serve them. God forbid the employment of any physical likenesses or representations in our worship of him. A good example of this is the crucifix. Of course, there's nothing wrong with a simple crucifix. It's a depiction of Jesus on the cross. But so often, it's used in worship and in prayer. And it becomes a distraction. You see, it's a fine line between using a tangible object to help focus my attention on God and allowing my attention to focus on that tangible object. God knows this, and that's why he forbids us from using graven images or tangible objects in our worship. You remember, Jesus said, those who worship me should worship me in spirit and in truth. Our worship of God should be spiritual, not physical. And the use of graven image, tangible objects in our worship is forbidden. You see, Jeroboam did not intend to introduce idolatry in Israel, but that's the net effect of his action. His golden calves became idols. They were used not as a means to worship God. They became an end in themselves, and they became the object of the northern kingdom's worship. In addition, they conditioned the people to embrace the blatant, the far more blatant idolatry that was introduced by King Ahab around 60 years later. In essence, Jeroboam established his own alternative religion, his own altars, his own priesthood, even his own feast days. I guess you could call it a cult of convenience. You see, seldom does Satan tempt us with no religion. He knows that we are worshipers at heart. The temptation, though, is to set up a religion that suits my tastes rather than stays true to God. You see, the enemy will water down the truth in order to make it palatable. The enemy loves to sort of dilute the demands of God and sort of work our religion around our own convenience. This was what Jeroboam tried to do. He worshipped God, but not in the way that God wanted to be worshipped. He worshipped God in a way that would be convenient for Jeroboam. Let's be careful that we not make that same mistake. Plenty of preachers today are out there diluting the doctrines of Christianity. They're watering down the demands of discipleship. We need to stay faithful to Jesus Christ, even when we have to go out of our way to do so. In chapter 13... The Lord lets Jeroboam know what he thinks of his religion. An unnamed prophet, he's simply called a man of God, pays Jeroboam a visit. And hey, that's what I want to be called. That's how I want to be known, a man of God. It doesn't matter if you never know my name just as long as I'm identified as a man of God. We never know this guy's name. He's simply called a man of God. This man of God approaches the king at the altar in the middle of a worship service. And understand, this takes nerve. This is boldness. This man of God can be executed for his disruption. This is like barging into the Oval Office or the Rose Garden in the middle of an official state function and pronouncing a judgment on the president. You try that and see how quickly it takes you to be arrested. Well, as he speaks... He makes an incredible prediction. He says that a Judean king, a descendant of David named Josiah, will bring judgment on these altars, these calves in Dan and in Bethel. This Judean king named Josiah will defile the altar Jeroboam has set up and will slaughter the priest that he's appointed. And to walk onto Jeroboam's turf and to utter those stern words, it required some guts. You've got to take your hat off to this man of God. What an amazing prophecy, though. Josiah won't be born for another 300 years. And we'll get to Second Kings chapter 23, verse 15, and there we'll be told how he clears out the idolatry and destroys Jeroboam's altars just as this man of God had predicted. But here he predicts a king who won't even be born for another 300 years. An amazing proof text here for the authority and supernatural origin of the Scriptures. But along with this prophecy, the man of God gives Jeroboam a sign. He says the altar is about to split in two and its ashes pour out. And of course that happens. Then when Jeroboam points to the man to have him arrested... The king's hand withers. An instant crippling arthritis sets in. And it gets the king's attention all right. Jeroboam begins to plead with the man of God to pray for his healing. He goes from ordering his arrest to pleading for his prayers in a matter of minutes. When his hand is restored, the king thanks the man of God by inviting him to his house for dinner. And he answers, the man of God answers him in verse 8. If you were to give me half your house, I would not go in with you, nor would I eat bread, nor drink water in this place. In other words, he wants to do nothing to give Jeroboam the impression that he is okay with God. God's act of mercy in healing his hand didn't change God's verdict on Jeroboam's sin. I guess you could say the king wouldn't have to swap his hand for a hook, but neither was he off the hook with God. God wanted this king to humble himself and to put an end to this sin. Sadly, he didn't. 1 Kings 13 verses 33 and 34 tell us, After this event, Jeroboam did not turn from his evil way, but again he made priests from every class of people for the high places. Notice, not from the tribe of Levi, where they should have been taken, but from every class of people. Whoever wished, he consecrated him, and he became one of the priests of the high places. And this thing was the sin of the house of Jeroboam. Every northern king who followed fostered this same sin in this alternative religion. And over and over again, for the next chapters, as we'll read, we'll find that the king walked in the way of Jeroboam and in his sin by which he made Israel sin. Jeroboam set a precedent that was repeated over and over again in the northern kingdom. Now, after this man of God leaves Bethel, it's interesting what happens to him. There's an older prophet who hears of his great courage and invites him into his house to eat. But God has forbidden him now from eating in the city of Bethel, lest he give the people the impression that God is pleased with what's been going on there in the land of Jeroboam. But this old prophet, he lies to the man of God. He says to him in verse 18, I too am a prophet as you are. And an angel spoke to me by the word of the Lord saying, and that was the lie right there. The angel didn't speak to you. Bring him back with you to your house that he may eat bread and drink water. And we're told by the author he was lying to him. The old prophet used that old God told me so routine. I've had people come to me in the past in order to tell me what God has told them that I should do. And over and over again, I've been able to look back and seen where if I had followed their instructions, it would have been disastrous. And rather than fostering God's plan, it probably would have derailed it. And I have learned that just because a comment gets prefaced, God told me, or an angel told me, doesn't necessarily mean that it's of God, which is exactly what the man of God learns here. Because this prophet is older, He's a strong personality. And the man of God is a little intimidated by this elder statesman. He trusts in what the prophet says rather than what God has already said to his heart. And he turns in to break bread in Bethel. And in doing so, he disobeys God. And in the end, he is eaten by a lion. Actually, he's already been eaten up by a lion prophet. I believe in the gift of prophecy, but I also have a healthy leeriness of people who approach me with the message, thus saith the Lord. I've concluded if God is in it, he will also call me direct. He'll confirm it to me personally. And always, what is truly of God will always be in harmony with his word. Paul's words in Galatians chapter 1 verse 8 could have saved this man of God his life. There Paul writes, Even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. Even if an angel appears, just as this prophet said, you know, this angel has told me. Even if an angel appears, if he contradicts the Scriptures, you can be assured that despite anything else he says, he's not of God. 1 John chapter 4, verse 1 is also applicable here. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God. And this is what the man of God should have done here. Now, in chapter 14... Jeroboam's son gets sick, and he remembers the prophet Ahiah. You remember while Solomon was still king, Ahiah had met Jeroboam in a field and had predicted the division of the kingdom. He had foretold Jeroboam's ascension to the throne of Israel. The king figures that maybe Ahiah can predict the outcome of his son's illness. He tells his wife to put on a disguise and visit Ahiah To inquire about her son. Apparently, Jeroboam didn't want to admit that his religion and its priests were powerless to help. You know, why didn't he consult his own prophets? Instead, he disguises his wife and he sneaks down to ask the prophet in Judah. And it's here where the king's logic really breaks down. He expects this prophet to see into the future and report the outcome of his son. But it doesn't dawn on him that if he can see into the future, he can also see through some flimsy disguise. And even though Ahiah has become blind by old age, the Lord reveals to him before she arrives that the visitor is actually Jeroboam's wife. And so before she can say, Ahiah there, Ahiah, The prophet says, come on in, Mrs. Jeroboam, I know who you are. And the news that Ahiah shares with her must have made her as sick as her son. Look at the awful prophecy that's predicted in chapter 14, verses 9 through 11. He says, but you have done more evil than all who were before you. For you have gone and made for yourself other gods and molded images to provoke me to anger. And have cast me behind your back. God saw those golden calves not as graven images but as outright other gods and idols. Therefore behold I will bring disaster on the house of Jeroboam. And will cut off from Jeroboam every male in Israel bond and free. I will take away the remnant of the house of Jeroboam. As one takes away refuse until it is all gone. The dogs shall eat whoever belongs to Jeroboam and dies in the city, and the birds of the air shall eat whoever dies in the field, for the Lord has spoken. A heavy, heavy indeed. Jeroboam's sons will become Alpo and bird seed. In addition, Ahiah tells Mrs. Jeroboam that when she returns home, her son will die. Which is exactly what happens. Verse 13 reveals, too, the reason that God takes the child of Jeroboam. And it shines light on one of the most troublesome issues in the Old Testament. We're told in verse 13, And all Israel shall mourn for him and bury him, for he is the only one of Jeroboam who shall come to the grave. In other words, die a nonviolent death, because in him there is found something good toward the Lord God of Israel. Now, this is so interesting to me. An innocent child was the only good that God could find in the house of Jeroboam. So rather than allow this boy to grow up under his father's evil influence, the Lord goes ahead and takes him. Death spares him a corrupting influence. In my mind, this was God's strategy in the conquest of Canaan. You remember, over and over again, Joshua is told to take no prisoners, no survivors, slaughter the women and the children as well as the soldiers. And we read that and we think, wow, God, that's brutal, that's barbaric. Why would you kill the innocent children? But we forget how hideously corrupt and defiled Canaanite culture had become. They were into blatant demonism, animalistic behavior, gross forms of lewdness. And I believe that God spared these Canaanite kids a corrupting influence by his orders of mass extermination. Of course, only God can make those decisions, but it was a severe mercy on the part of God to take these innocent children just as it is here. Verse 15 reveals another ominous aspect of the northern kingdom's future. We're told that Israel will be uprooted from the land and scattered beyond the river, a reference to the Euphrates River, which was on the border of the Assyrian Empire. The demise of the northern kingdom will culminate... In 722 B.C. when the Assyrians will sack the capital city of the North Samaria and scatter the tribes among the nations. And if you want to flash ahead 200 years, Second 2 Kings 17 records Israel's final days. Verse 20 tells us that Jeroboam's administration lasted just 22 years, but his evil influence, the sin of Jeroboam, became a permanent blight upon this nation. Now, from 1 Kings chapter 14 through 2 Kings chapter 17, the author is going to flip-flop back and forth between the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And you're going to have to stay on your toes, or you're going to get confused about who he's talking about. Nineteen kings will rule over the northern kingdom of Israel. And how many of them do you think please the Lord? Zero, zip, zilch, nada, not a one. It reminds me of the woman who had twins and she gave both her boys up for adoption. One of the sons was adopted by an Egyptian family who named him Amal. The other son was adopted by a Spanish family who named him Juan. And one day she received a picture from her son, from her son Juan. There in Spain. And she thought, Wow, what a handsome young man, and she remarked to her husband how she wished that she also had a picture of them all. But her husband reminded her, Honey, they're twins. If you've seen one, you've seen them all. And that's about how it is with the kings of Israel. If you've seen one. You've seen them all. All 19 kings ended up goons. They all followed in the sin of Jeroboam. 20 kings reign over Judah, the southern kingdom, and only eight win the Lord's approval. But those eight kings keep Judah going another 135 years. After the fall of Israel, Judah is eventually conquered by Babylon and taken captive for 70 years. 1 Kings chapter 14, verse 21 shifts south to Judah. Rehoboam reigned 17 years in Jerusalem, but he too worshipped the false gods that he had seen his father Solomon worship. Rehoboam built what we're going to run across over and over again now, what were called high places. (coughs) These were pagan altars, idolatrous centers. He built them throughout Judah. And understand they were forbidden by God. In fact, in the law of Moses, Leviticus 26, verse 30, God promised to destroy all of the high places. Guys, it makes me wonder if there are any high places in our lives. Are there any places we value too highly? Are there any people or possessions or positions in our life that we value more highly than our relationship with God? If we, if there are, we need to tear down those high places. It's important for us to understand that often we can even turn good things into idols. If we're not careful, we can exalt the blessing more highly than the blesser. Let's be careful that we not erect high places in our lives. I love what D.L. Moody once said. You don't have to go to heathen lands today to find false gods. America's full of them. Whatever you love more than God is your idol. And it's really pretty much that simple. You can find idols today in driveways and in trophy cases and in china cabinets and in bank accounts. We need to tear down the high places in our lives before the Lord tears them down for us. A tragedy occurs at the end of First Kings chapter 14. Pharaoh Shishak of Egypt, who we talked about this morning, rips off the 500 golden shields that Solomon had made. And Rehoboam doesn't even bother to retrieve them. He's content to substitute bronze shields for golden shields. And there's so much symbolism behind this story. Remember, gold is a type of God's work. Man plays no part. In the making of gold, it can't be manufactured. It's a work of God. Whereas bronze is an alloy of zinc and copper. It's the result of a man-made process. And here what is what has happened in many quarters of the church. God's work. The supernatural power of the Holy Spirit is being replaced today by man-made processes and programs and traditions. The gold is gone. And we've become content with the bronze Churches are trying to grow today through gimmicks and through self-constructed formulas and through the latest marketing techniques rather than relying on the golden power of God. It's time that the leaders in the church became courageous. Courageous enough to storm the gates of the enemy and take back the golden shields that have been stolen from us. In First Kings 15 and 16... The author begins the succession of kings that come after Rehoboam in the south and Jeroboam in the north. Rehoboam of Judah died in 913 BC and his son Abijam ruled in his place for three years. His reign is summed up in verse 3. And he walked in all the sins of his father, which he had done before him. His heart was not loyal to the Lord his God as was the heart of his father David Abijam was a bust. But his son Asa turned out to be a blessing. He ruled Judah for 41 years. And in verse 11, we're told, Asa did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, as did his father David, and he banished the perverted ones, or literally the homosexuals, from the land and removed all the idols that his father had made. Now, Asa took a public stand against two things, against idolatry and against homosexuality. And I believe he rightly discerned that these two sins are the most destructive sins in a society. They strike at the foundation of civilization. Idolatry is an affront to man's most vital relationship, his relationship with God. Whereas homosexuality undermines the next most important relationship for man, and that is the marital relationship, the union between the husband and the wife. And a society that promotes idolatry and endorses homosexuality is writing its own death certificate. Without God and without marriage... As the foundation of society, that society is going to crumble and eventually disintegrate. I like what Asa does in verse 13. It says, he removed Maka, his grandmother, from being queen mother because she had made an obscene image of Azurah, which was one of the fertility goddesses of the Canaanites. And Asa cut down her obscene image. It was probably some phallic symbol and burned it by the brook Kidron. Both Asa's parents and his grandparents failed to serve the Lord and followed after idols. And yet Asa served the Lord. I know people, though, that would use an idolatrous parent and grandparent as an excuse. But Sandy, I'm a victim of a dysfunctional family. Well, so was Asa. His grandma worshipped a lewd image. How's that for an ungodly heritage from your grandma? And yet Asa made a commitment to break the chain of family dysfunction. Rather than repeat the mistakes of his grandparents and his parents, he chose to start over. Guys, maybe you were abused. By a father who was abused. Who was abused by his father and his... Wait a minute, stop right there. Break the chain. Just because you were abused doesn't mean that you have to be an abuser. The power of the Holy Spirit can set you free. God can liberate you. God can enable you to overcome a family history and give your future family. A brand new start. Asa did it. (coughs) And you can do it too. Trust the Lord for His help. And He will give you victory. Morgan Cryer has an old song called Break the Chain. And I'll read you a few of the lyrics. Sometimes sin is just a family tradition. But it'll burn the family tree to the ground. Nobody wants to inherit the flames. You sure don't want to pass them down. And then he chimes in on the chorus. Cut the cord, end the curse, stop the rain. The family sin will do you in, so break the chain. And that's the thing that Asa did. He broke the chains of sin in his family. The one deficiency on Asa's report card is in verse 14. But the high places were not removed. Nevertheless, Asa's heart was loyal to the Lord all his days. And as you study these kings Some of them will be bad kings who will do a few good things. Some of them will be good kings who will make some mistakes. Ultimately, they'll be judged, good or bad, based on the attitude of their heart toward God. Asa wasn't perfect. He allowed some of the high places to remain. But his heart was loyal. And that's what God was looking for. That's what God is looking for in us, guys. Not perfection. But devotion. We'll slip. We'll fall. We'll leave some things undone. And yet, where is our heart? Is our heart fixed on Him? Is our heart loyal toward God? That's what God will ultimately look for. Verse 23 tells us of Asa. In the time of his old age, he was diseased in his feet. It reminds me of the tombstone that's found in Richmond, Virginia. That tombstone reads, She always said her feet were killing her, but nobody believed her. <laughs> Maybe that was Asa. First Chronicles chapter 16, verse 12, a parallel passage makes an interesting comment about Asa's foot disease. There we read, Asa became diseased in his feet, and his malady was very severe. But catch this, yet in his disease, he did not seek the Lord, but the physicians. He consulted all the podiatrists in Jerusalem, but he never sought the Lord. Isn't that sad? I wonder, though, if this applies to any of us. We've gone from doctor to doctor to specialist to specialist. On and on we go, making the rounds. But have you really stopped and really gotten on your knees and really sought the Lord for His healing touch? Remember, all of the DRs and the MDs call themselves practicing physicians. And that should tell you something right there. That they don't really know what they're doing. They're still practicing on you. But understand, there is one great physician, our Lord Jesus Christ. And he knows exactly what he's doing. He's still in the healing business. Hey, if you've got a foot problem tonight, don't trust in Dr. Sholes. Trust in Dr. Jesus. You'll always be a foot up on the problem if you'll consult the Lord. Now, Jehoshaphat, Asa's son, takes over after him, and I'm sure this was one time when the son wasn't necessarily hip on following in his father's shoes, deceased feet, following his father's shoes. Get it? <laughs> The imagery there is a little gross, but Jehoshaphat does even a better job than his father. He really does a fine job as king, and we're going to read about Jehoshaphat again in the last chapter of First Kings. In the meantime, the next seven chapters focus again on the northern kingdom of Israel, and in chapter 15, verse 25, we're told that Nadab, the son of Jeroboam, became king after his father died. But Nadab reigned a mere two years. He was assassinated by a man named Basha. And though Basha was an awful man, really, God used him to exact judgment on the house of Jeroboam. Verse 29 tells us that Basha slaughtered the family of Jeroboam in fulfillment of the judgment that God had pronounced by the prophet Ahiah. Now, Basha ruled Israel for 24 years. And he, too, perpetuated the sin of Jeroboam. In fact, back in verse 22, we're told that Basha was the guy who built the border city of Ramah. Only eight miles north of Jerusalem. And here's why he did it. The reforms that Asa had instituted in the south had birthed a revival in Judah. And it had stirred up the hunger of the hearts of the people so that they wanted to worship God in truth, in spirit and in truth. It had even stirred up many of the folks in the northern kingdom of Israel. And many of the northerners wanted to return to the true worship of God, and they began migrating south into Judah. Basha didn't like that. And so he built this border city of Rama, sort of a checkpoint to stop the exodus. Rama was Basha's version of the Berlin Wall, you might say. But King Asa, with the help of King Ben-Hadid of Syria, destroyed Ramah and thwarted Basha's efforts. And I think it's interesting that God always sees to it that the path to him is open so that any hungry heart can make their way clearly and freely to God if they're truly sincere and truly seeking him. Now, because of his evil, God tells Basha through the prophet Jehu that he wants to follow, that if he wants to follow Jeroboam's sin, then he'll also follow Jeroboam's end. And his sons will also become Alpo for the dogs of Israel. And with the likes of all these kings, we're going to find that the dogs in Israel were well fed dogs. And it's true when Basha dies, His son Elah takes over. And Elah reigns two years before he's assassinated by his servant Zimri. And we're told how it happened. One night, Elah had gotten drunk and Zimri sneaked into his room and murdered the king. And Zimri reigned over Israel just seven days. And the only noteworthy thing that he did was fulfill God's judgment on the house of Basha and slaughter his son's just as Jehu had predicted and again fed the dogs of Israel. Now Zimri is unseated when his superior, Omri, hears about the coup d'etat. Omri is the general of the army. And he returns to the capital city of Terza with his troops. And since Omri has the support of the army, Zimri knows that his coup is doomed. And so he climbs into the tower and he burns it to the ground with him in it. And Omri takes over from Zimri. Now during Asa's 41 years in Jerusalem, the kings of Israel, they come and they go. They were here for a short time. They were there and they own and off the scene. But Omri finally brings a little stability to the northern kingdom. He reigns for 17 years. Omri's most notable accomplishment was the building and founding of the city of Samaria. Later, Samaria will take over from Tirzah as the capital of the northern kingdom. But Omri also followed the sin of Jeroboam. In fact, he was the worst king yet. Verse 26 tells us, he made Israel sin, provoking the Lord God of Israel to anger with their idols. But Omri was a saint compared to his successor, Ahab. When Omri dies... His son Ahab sits on the throne in Israel. And Ahab rules 22 years and they are the darkest, most wicked 22 years in the history of Israel. Verse 33 says it best. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. And the worst mistake that Ahab made was his choice of a bride. He married a Phoenician by the name of Jezebel. And to this day, we refer to a cunningly sinister and evil woman as a Jezebel. One of the best things you can do for your kids is stress the importance of their choice in a mate. <laughs> And if you want to emphasize that, take them here to Ahab. (laughs) He made a huge mistake by choosing this Jezebel to be his wife. Notice what we're told in chapter 16, verse 31. And it came to pass as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that he took as wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ithbael, king of the Sidonians, and he went and served Baal and worshipped him. Now Jeroboam had established a subtle form of idolatry in Israel, but Ahab and Jezebel, man, they pull out all the stops. They promote a no-holds-barred, blatant, brazen brand of idolatry. They introduce into Israel the evil system of Baal worship. The historian Josephus says that Jezebel was the one who taught the worship of Baal to Ahab. Jezebel brought with her to Israel the priests and the prophets of Baal. We're going to meet them next week on Mount Carmel. And she supported their ministry with state funds. Jezebel's goal was to make Baal, the God of Israel. And according to 1 Kings 18, verse 13, Jezebel even launched a campaign to exterminate the prophets of Jehovah. This was a vile and violent woman. Jezebel also had Ahab build a temple to Baal in the capital city of Samaria. Prior to the reign of Ahab and Jezebel, Israel had flirted with this Baal worship but these two partners in crime institutionalize it and promote this blasphemous religion. Understand, Baal worship was hideous. Baal was the god of the Canaanites, the god of nature. And the Canaanites believed that Baal controlled agriculture and the processes of reproduction. Baal's female counterpart, Azura, or Ashtaroth, was seen as the goddess of fertility and she was worshiped with all kinds of lewd and immoral sexual activities. Along with bell worship came the practice of temple prostitution and even child sacrifice. The wooden image made by Ahab in verse 33 was the azurah And again, it was probably a phallic symbol for the wicked perversions of these fertility followers. That's why I said at the beginning of tonight's study, Solomon opened Pandora's box. He really did. Solomon's concessions to his wives led to Jeroboam's compromise, which led to Ahab's corruption. You want to write down those three C's because this is how it always works. This is the progression. Little concessions to sin lead to calculated compromises which lead to rampant corruption. Concession leads to compromise which leads to corruption. If you'll make no concessions with the enemy, if you'll give no room to sin, if you'll give no place to the devil, as we're told in Ephesians, you know, then you'll be in no danger of compromise or corruption but if you give in here give in there before long you'll you'll compromise before long you'll become a corrupt person we see it in the history of the northern kingdom of israel chapter 16 ends with the fulfillment of a 500-year-old prophecy it was first uttered back in joshua chapter 6 verse 26 and it's your homework to go and to track down that prophecy and to see how it is fulfilled here, and to marvel as a result at God's incredible foreknowledge. When God tells us the end of a matter from its beginning, it provides us amazing proof for the divine authority of Scripture. As 1 Kings 16 comes to a close, the sun is hidden behind the clouds. The family of Israel is at war with one another. Wicked men now occupy positions of leadership. Israel is experiencing one of its darkest moments in its history. But that's when God shines one of his brightest lights. Chapter 17 opens with the words, Elijah the Tishbite. And so hang tight. The out-of-sight Tishbite is on sight. Shining the light, filled with God's might, upholding the right, fighting the fight. And we'll study Elijah next Sunday night. Lord, thank you for your love for us, your goodness toward us. Continue to work in our hearts as we study your word throughout the week. Lord, make us students of the Scriptures. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.